Welcome to episode number 32 in the EAE podcast series. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, and we're so happy you're tuning in for a listen. It's late November, which means the academic year is well underway, and across Europe, our academic colleagues are deep into their primary activities, which of course means teaching and research. Although both of these activities clearly sit together at the heart of the academic enterprise, there's a great deal of discussion about how these two core areas are mutually reinforcing, or not, in reality. As policymakers and academic leaders in Europe articulate ever bolder aspirations for high-quality teaching and socially and economically transformational research, much is being made of the need to ensure synergies between teaching and research. We were drawn to this topic based on the understanding that internationalization has a role to play in these dynamics too. For example, as the new European University alliances work through strategic interinstitutional partnerships to take higher education in Europe to unprecedented levels of competitiveness, teaching and research are being called upon to play newly innovative and interlocking roles. So how does an expert on the synergies between teaching and research in Europe view such developments these days? Our recent conversation with Didi Griffion, professor and head of the Department of Higher Education Research and Innovation at the Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences, aims to give us all some insights into these dynamics. It's really lovely to be chatting with you today. Thanks for taking the time. I wanted to start off with a bit of a personal question for you. You're an expert on the dynamics between research and teaching within universities. And I was just curious to know a little bit about how you, you personally originally became interested in this theme. Yeah, I, I was a lecturer, I think, for, for about a year uh, at my applied university in Amsterdam. Um, and there was this session of colleagues. It was listed as a session about research in social work. And I was just curious what they did. At the time, I worked at the commercial economics department uh, at my university, working with high-level high sports athletes uh, doing a, a commercial economic study. So I went to that session, and the whole afternoon was about this community home uh, where, where, where people from, from the village could join in activities. It was a very interesting uh, activity and a very interesting talk. But all through the talk, I was wondering, why is this called research? Um, and for me, it's sort of a, a build up where already my master thesis was wondering uh, about what is quality uh, in, in university quality, uh, sort of quality enhancement of university education. Um, so the, the wondering about what is research in an applied setting was the start off of doing my PhD thesis in that, in that perspective. And then building up to being, becoming a policy officer, uh, actively connecting research and teaching in my own university and beyond. So often for me, things start at wondering why people call things what they call them and what do they mean with that and why do they do that? Yeah. Um, so a research is one of those things which can imply many things. So in this case, it could imply uh, enhancing uh, interaction between village uh, inhabitants uh, in, in a community home. Very interesting. So uh, it's funny how we can just uh, seize an opportunity out of curiosity and it opens a door on so many new ways that we can do our work and uh, advance our thinking. It's very interesting. So we're here to talk today about the synergy between research and teaching. And I was hoping that you could reflect a little bit on why it is that that particular synergy is so important at the moment um, in the context of higher education. 
generally the connection between research and teaching is mainly focused to individual academics doing both research and teaching, where the research enhances the teaching and the teaching enhances the research. I think we, we try to add a perspective to that. Uh, what universities often don't embrace or, or, or maybe even forget is that by doing research and teaching, they, they become a hybrid organization. And hybrid organizations are rather complex organizations. It, it's much easier to have just one um, primary process, one logic, one uh, system, one culture uh, in place. And we, we have many uh, studies looking at how uh, academics struggle with the different cultures and different practices of combining research and teaching. But if you raise that to a more organizational perspective and an organizational level, universities should be ha having this feel of the need to actually connect them. Because if you, if you would not connect your two very complex primary processes, why would you then have them in one organizational structure? You could then better uh, organize them separately. So the presumption is if you have them both in the university as we have, uh, and there are very, very many reasons and, and feelings attached to that, perspectives and norms, and, and we all, many of us feel that that is the way it should be. Then you should also be actively striving to a connection between those two, because otherwise it would be senseless to have them combined in a one organization. Um, so, so it's important. It's important for, for us as individuals because we feel it's important and we, we see effects of that on, on a very local level. But on, a, on, on an organizational perspective, it's, it's, it's as important just for your, for your, for your business, for your, for your practice, for your validation of how you run things in an organizational perspective. So you've already alluded to the, this fundamental question of complexity and the difficulty that comes with that in and of itself. I wonder if you might be able to help us think through a little bit um, how you see some of the primary challenges to enabling mutually reinforcing dynamics between research and teaching. How are higher education's responding to this, this challenge of bringing these two very complex things together and having them be mutually reinforcing? In a way, following from what I said before, universities mainly often focus on the level of this individual academic. So the presumption that if one individual works in research and works in teaching, there's therefore a synergy or, or, or a mutual enhancement taking place. Often, not always, but often the strategy goes as far as that. And it's a rather thick presumption, particularly in the time where we don't have education anymore where the individual academic can decide upon his or her own module uh, and is, is very autonomous in that. It, it differs per program, per university, how autonomous the, the academic actually is. But presuming that based on, on proper curriculum design, we more and more design uh, curricula collectively, uh, th this whole idea of that individual who can bring uh, his, his or her own research into their own modules is simply a rather naive presumption in that sense. So you could say that the challenge for universities is, is to look at connections between research and teaching on, on, on different levels other than only on the level of this individual academic. It also, also should be a collective strive. So it's not about only my research and my teaching. It's, it should also be about our research and our teaching, but also on the level of who is in charge of the funding of research and teaching and the decision-making uh, in the department or faculty. Uh, and for instance, the work by, by Jenkins and Healy uh, suggested that already, but it's not too often that I see universities actually striving actively to, uh, 
to making that connection on other levels than, than just saying, well, you do both. You see a bit more of that in applied universities because not all academics in applied universities do research and teaching. Many do only research or only teaching. And then this presumption cannot be just that. I mean, you, if, if, if you don't have the connection in the person, then you simply need to do something different. Um, but even there, it still is difficult. So you've put your finger on a particular detail that I was hoping that we could touch on, which is the experience of universities of applied sciences, which you've, you've just mentioned. My understanding of these, that is that these have historically been quite focused on the teaching side of the house. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, have, many have really invested quite heavily in expanding their research programs and profiles. So I was wondering about the kinds of changes that have been required to make it possible for institutions not historically focused on research to enter that domain and to be competitive in that area. How is that working out in practice? I think it's difficult. And I think you can historically in the last, say, 20 to 30 years, see, see several rounds, which are not parallel across countries, but you see the same changes going around in, in different countries at different times. Applied universities not only have the challenge to, to bring research into their teaching only university game, but also to in a way, reinvent what research is. And I think you could say that the first cycle of implementing research in these universities uh, implied implementing research, as we know, in research intensive universities. Uh, generally, not always, but generally more with a more fundamental or academic focus. So applied universities implemented research based on bringing colleagues with research experience into their own universities, funding them. Uh, and based on that, as effect, there was kind of a mismatch between the educational programs, which are professionally oriented uh, and the research, which was often academically oriented or so very practical that others would not consider it research anymore. So what you see since then is that uh, applied universities take on the challenge of inventing, reinventing research in relation to professional practice. So what does it imply for a future professional as their students are um, to also be capable in doing research? What, 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 what is that then? What, what, what do we talk about then? And often still you see that students in those programs learn to do research in a way that they will never use in their future practice. They can call it research. They have sort of a sense of what that implies, but they become a nurse and never use it again or become a social worker or an engineer and they will never use it again. So I think that is sort of the, the current uh, vibe going on, that, that we should try to invent a proper type of research, which still is a valid way of doing research, but is sensible for, for future professional practice as well as for the current professional practice. And the, generally the beliefs in, in what is true and what is right coming from research differs between professional practice and, and, acada and the academic world. The notion that as Nowotny says, research is, is proper if an academic formulates the right question and combines that with the proper method, therefore coming to the right answer, is not the way that it works in professional practice. The, the whole notion, this whole methodological orientation, often in practice, the intention is to just skip the method because formulating the question implies knowing the answer. And that was, that's something an academic would never do because this, this method validates uh, the quality of the work. So if, if these notions 
in its most extremes, obviously. I mean, there's, there's a lot in between. But are, are that different? And you need to reinvent as applied to universities what you apply with, 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 with research into practice. Mm -hmm. sense. So absolutely, really, you know, challenging, I would think, you know, to develop this thinking and, and to try to operate in some new and different ways as an institution. And I'm curious about the transitions, the discussions, the probably the in some ways, cultural identity crises that might be going on with that process. Is there, are there lessons from that experience at universities of applied sciences that might be interesting for research universities to also grapple with a little bit in this fundamental question about what is research today and how should we be approaching it? Yeah, possibly. And, and then mainly because if you go through such a change as applied universities, in a way, you sort of need to do that in, in a very aware mode. Uh, you cannot do that accidentally. So, so you could say that the research intensive universities could take on uh, just as a reflection, this idea of, well, just stop once in a while and, and wonder uh, what is your role in society? Uh, how do you position yourself in that sense? What does then research imply and what does then teaching imply? For instance, the whole, the whole strive now for, for open access that implies a change in if you really open up. So not only in a sending mode, uh, but also in a receiving mode that implies that others will co-decide with you what, what research and quality of research is in, in, in a kind of similar but different way as, as for the applied universities. And if you really, if you are really serious in that and really say, well, we are not only a sender of knowledge and we, I mean, we do co-create, but if we co-create, we are in charge. So, well, if you, if you share that responsibility, that would imply a change in how, what research is and how you, how you define quality in that sense as well. And, and somehow for me that the, the, there's not yet that feel of that shared responsibility. So it, it seems as if research intensive universities are striving to, to shift their position in society and, and to, to reconsider their responsibility. But it somehow seems that the implications of that are not yet part of the debate. It's mainly about how and what and how do we open up and, and how do we share data and how, how do we bring our knowledge in an open way that others can read it. But yeah, if you really open up, then how far do you bring society in? Yeah. Um, and how, how far are you willing to go in actually sharing the responsibility of, of what, it, what quality implies in your research as well as in your teaching? Um, so that reflection, I think that, that it's coming. I mean, it's, uh, you and I don't need to, to push that because it's, it's clear that, that that will be part of the debate sooner or later. Um, but in a way, that is sort of the, the, the kind of debate that applied universities are going through on another topic in another way uh, at the same time currently. Great. Okay. Very interesting to think about those different um, realities and approaches. Um, taking us down to a bit more of a concrete example, your university is part of the European Alliance known as Eureka, I believe. So in what ways are the partners in this alliance engaging with or learning from one another when it comes to this effort of trying to integrate teaching and research more purposefully. Do you see some common approaches or notable differences, kinds of dynamics, you know, might you be able to talk about uh, in, in relation to that? I would like to shift that a bit. So one of the one of the things, indeed, uh, my university is part of Eureka, and one of the things 
uh, one of the roles I had in that context uh, was arranging for a higher education research and development network. And the end of the end of my answer will be uh, currently I don't know that much because I'm not an active player in that part again. Uh, at the moment. Um, so what we tried to do with, at the time, six partners was um, to try and bring together a collective practice of higher education research and development, sharing knowledge, uh, sharing practices in that regard. And to say, well, we as players already work internationally. So let's set the example and also try to do some collective research in that regard. And then, as always, you come across intercultural differences, differences in standards, differences in ethics, differences in, well, that's sort of the normal thing. You don't need Eureka for that, but you, that happened in that context as well. One of the things that was also rather clear from the start is that colleagues in my role, as well as in the roles of the other six at the time, I think there are eight now, don't actually need a collective uh, organization as Eureka. Because actually, as, as an international academic or internationally oriented academic, I have my networks. I don't really need a Eureka to bring colleagues together. I can do that elsewhere, as, as colleagues do that at your conference as well. And I think that was sort of the paradox of working in, in this context. So the ambition was bring colleagues to international levels. Um, but those colleagues who already are there were not very eager because they they already are working internationally. And they think, well, what, what does this outlet bring me other than what I already have? And then there are these colleagues who never work internationally and we could bring them to an international level. And so it was, in the end, mainly juniors interacting with juniors and then juniors in a certain perspective. So juniors in this sense of uh, being a higher education research and developer, uh, which can be very experienced lecturers in a way, but with the ambition in, in this network of interacting on, on the level of higher education research and development, they had very interesting talks, but there, were, there was not this level of seniors who could actually bring them to a higher level in the game, so to say. Uh, so on the one hand, this whole idea of bringing a larger group of, of colleagues and in the end also students uh, to this international level, interacting, you do need your, your seniors to work with that. And, and in a way, uh, university board members of these different partner institutions arranging a, a Eureka kind of interaction setting uh, and formalization of an organization together um, also implies kind of an empty, so on a content level, an empty shell, which should be filled with people like me and others. But then again, if, if you mainly get the juniors on board, then what do you have? And, and so, so it's, it's, I think it's a very difficult, um, not impossible, but, it, but a very difficult um, strive to, to, to arrange university partnerships where traditionally you have disciplinary partnerships, which are very different and have high content to them. Um, yeah, so, so, so it's, it's for me as, as a researcher, it's a very interesting thing to consider and and in that sense it's, it's it was also very interesting to have a part in that play a part in that and and to feel how how you get people moving or not moving and and who is moving and who is willing and who can bring something i think that's a super fascinating set of insights that you've raised about this you know dynamic of bringing bringing full institutions together and all of these different actors that are imb embedded with them that already may have some different things going on that connect them internationally in different ways 
I think trying to orchestrate all that or find the right recipe to meet those different needs is really fascinating. And I, I guess something that we'll be watching for some time when it comes to the European University's ambitions and experiments. So uh, thanks for sharing you know, that, that experience that you had with that, that challenging dynamic. Getting you know, a little bit further into this question around European aspirations for the teaching and research dance. Um, in preparing for this conversation with you, we came across a September 2020 communication from the European Commission on achieving the European education area. And there was a line in there noting that higher education institutions in Europe are at the heart of both the European education area and the European research area and are particularly well-placed to connect them together. Based on, on what you've you know, been talking about in, in, in this one experience and your experience kind of looking out across the landscape of developments in Europe, I wonder how you would characterize your levels of, one could say optimism or skepticism when it comes to this EU level vision for synergies between education and research in higher education. I think in general, I mean, based on that that line, that bit of text uh, and its context, I think the European Commission is right. I mean, if if you do research and if as well as teaching in a systematic way, so as an institution, as a university, and you can ideally connect both research and teaching as well as connect those activities across universities. Yeah, if you could do that, then then they are actually rather right that they are ideally positioned in that way. However, if you build up from what we were talking bef about before, um, so if you want to do that in a single university or in a single department, uh, you need to do more than just looking at the individual academic. So now looking from the completely different level, if, if you want to do that at a European level, it's not enough to just say, well, we have universities uh, and they accidentally or not accidentally do research and teaching. And so, well, uh, there's synergy. Oh, yeah, that's not how it works. So, so what you could say is that also coming from this high over European uh, level, you need to work back to, in the end, the practices of individual academics again or individual departments on, on actually bringing together research and teaching aimed at better education or aimed at more suitable innovations. So you could say that from both perspectives, creating synergy implies work and in it, it implies an active strategy. Uh, and one of the things we try to do, so so. I ran in my university at the university level, a strategic program in the last five years. I've run a strategic program connecting research and teaching across my university aimed at the level of bachelor programs. So again, you need to aim at where you want to see it uh, happening uh, and you, you need to put strategies in place. You need to work to actually get that done. And what we also did was saying, well, our university culture needs to change to actually achieve that. So it's not only about the curriculum design. It's not only about the competencies of our own lecturers and, and, and researchers and students in the end. It's also about uh, the culture and the willingness to actually put that in place. So we, we arranged for a national network uh, of, of applied universities who actually work on the same things to try and enhance their collective culture in that way. But again, that can happen and it can be done, but it's a lot of work to actually do it. And you need to very 
systematically put a strategy, a long-term strategy in place um, to achieve that. And the same goes for, for, for my very small scale, uh, uh, six university Eureka um, network. Um, the things we talked before about juniors and seniors and how that works and how you bring them in, that was part of strategy debates. So information for strategy debates on how can we bring people together? And what, what, what do we actually aim to happen? Uh, and how can we make that work? Um, so I think whether it should be the European Commission or, or, or collectives of universities, or again, collectives of disciplines across universities, they, they should wonder what it is they actually want to achieve. So it's not enough to say, well, uh, synergy can happen. No, you, you, need to, you need to formulate what you imply with that synergy and, and on what level that takes place. And one of the things we did was write down our experiences and our strategies in, in, in a book that will be coming out next, next year uh, at Bloomsbury Academic. Actually explaining just that, you need to be rather precise in, in where you want the change to happen, where you want to see the synergy. Is that in the academic? Is that in an educational program? Is that in innovation? Is that on a faculty level? Is that in university communication? Is that in international collaboration? And how does that look in, in reality? And then wonder which steps to take over time to actually achieve that. And in my university, we took five years. I work at a large university. We have about 50,000 students. So that's the largest one, at least in my country. So on that scale, we had five years. And, and in, the, in those five years, what we actually could achieve was bringing awareness and desire to, to the educational teams who actually be part of this change. Um, and see a first round of changing at the level of, of bachelor curricula. Um, but that does not yet imply that these bachelor curricula are already where they should be or where we want them to be in the end. So we already took five years to actually get the organization moving only uh, in that perspective. So if you want to do that at a European level, um, you should at least take your time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and, and, be, and be, again, be rather clear about what you want to see after a certain amount of time uh, and put strategy in place to get there. So, so it, I think the, the European commit, Committee is rather right in the potential, um, but you need to add the work to it to actually get there. Didi, thank you so much for these really precise and purposeful reflections that you've shared on this very complex topic with us. It's been a, a great pleasure to talk with you and learn from you today. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome, thank you. Professor and Head of the Department of Higher Education Research and Innovation at the Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. More information on Professor Rifyun and the subject of our conversation with her on the challenges and opportunities of achieving greater synergies between teaching and research in higher education today can be found in our session notes. There's a long road ahead for evolution in this particular area, I think, but a very short road ahead until we reach the end of this calendar year. As we look to the next year, it's important for you to know that it's now possible to lock in your EAIE membership for 2022. As an EAIE member, you'll have access to member-exclusive resources such as videos and publications. You'll also have opportunities to connect with your peers and colleagues via the EAIE mentorship program and other networking opportunities. And of course, you'll also benefit from significant discounts on events, such as the EAE Community Summit and our annual conference and exhibition.
If you think your colleagues could also benefit from being part of the EIE community, please take a look at our group membership, available in packs of 10, 15, 20, and 35. For more information, do visit the EIE website and click on Join Us. We also hope you'll join us again for another EIE podcast episode. Our next installment will be published in two weeks' time on December 8th. Between now and then, if you're enjoying our series, we hope you'll like and share us on social media. Subscribing to us on your preferred podcast platform also ensures you won't miss a single episode. Thanks again for tuning in and all good wishes to you from the EAIE.